Good morning and welcome to Blendville Online and happy 4th of July. Langdon Gil Gilkey wrote a book entitled Shantung Compound, the story of men and women under pressure. Gilkey is a theologian and he was imprisoned in a Japanese detention camp during World War II, along with 2,000 other people from various other countries. And all of them were locked up in a small compound, a small prison. And the one trait the 2,000 prisoners shared was that they were all Westerners, American and British citizens. Now, some in the prison were missionaries, others were business people, while others were teachers and political leaders. And they took this group and they forced them to live to get together in a crowded space. In fact, they needed to learn how to cooperate or they would all die. Now, Gilkey's job was to assign rooms for each captive in the camp, which led to some pretty interesting situations, which is what he describes in the book. In a chapter entitled, A Place of One's Own, Gilkey tells of the people's strong feelings for having a place they could call their own. There was one instance in the book where a very gentle, gracious lady showed this strong craving for her own space. Now, there was a, her roommate right in the, in the bed right next to her. And the gracious lady wanted her own space. And though it took time before the roommate noticed, the roommate began to realize that the gracious lady was moving the roommate's bed a fraction of an inch each day. All why? So the gracious lady's own bed had more space. So the gracious lady's own bed had a better view through the window and all at the expense of her roommate. That's human nature. We all want a place of our own, don't we? And that is what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, not in a negative sense, in an important sense. King David is establishing a place of his own for his kingdom, Israel. So let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's the story of Israel submitting to Judah's king, David, as God's king. And here's what the text says. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone, we are your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. Verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, in verses 1 through 3, although David is king of Judah, the tribes of Israel come to David in Hebron to recognize and anoint David king of, of Israel as well. Now, as the reader, this should make us inch to the edge of our seats. You see, when Israel chose Saul to be their first king back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, their motivation to do so was because of the threat the threat that they felt from their enemies who were ready to attack them. 
It was in their panic that Israel demanded God give them a human king, and Saul was their man. Now, let me ask you a question. How do your plans tend to turn out when you make an impulsive decision in a crisis? Impulsive decisions, impulsive decisions in a crisis, uh, they don't always make for the best decisions, do they? In fact, watch this AmeriQuest mortgage advertisement and you will see what I mean. Hello? How much are they asking? Well, that's a lot of money for a deck. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're getting robbed. Uh, did you hear me? You're getting robbed. Ow! Stop! AmeriQuest, an open-minded, equal opportunity lender. Do you remember what happens to Israel after they choose Saul as king in their panic? Well, Saul takes Israel in the wrong direction with God. But now, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, Israel appears to be in a different place. There's an absence of crisis. There's no pressing danger that's forcing Israel into a rush decision. You see, for several years now, King Saul, king of Israel, he's been dead, leaving Israel in need of a new king. Having watched David rule Judah well for the past seven and a half years, the Israelite elders come to David in Hebron and they ask David to be king of Israel as well. Now, are you with me so far? From the text, there are three traits the Israelite elders see in David, which make them willing to submit to King David as their ruler. The very first quality that we see is this. The Israelites recognize the shared identity they have with David. Like them, David is a true Israelite. In fact, look what the elders say. We are your bone and flesh. Now, this is a very significant profession on the part of the Israelite elders. They acknowledge their essential unity, that they are rooted in their common fatherhood with Jacob. Remember, Jacob's God, God renamed Jacob Israel. They do not say, you are one with us. No, they say, we are one with you. You see, from the time of Jacob, unity has always been a challenge for the sons of Jacob. Look at how much they hated their brother Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. There was such disunity among the brothers that they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. But now, the Israelites are willing to see themselves as one nation with Judah, not two. And this is key to David's leadership of the whole nation. Uh, there's a second thing we see. The Israelites recognize the mil military prowess of David. Even though Saul was king, it was David's leadership that brought God's people victory. When Israel initially demanded that God give them a king, here was their motivation according to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 to 20. It says this, they wanted a king to go out before them to fight their battles. And yet, Saul, on several occasions, squirmed his way out of that responsibility, didn't he? It was not Saul who went up against Goliath, but David. 
It was not Saul who led Israel in in battle, but David. You see, the Israelite elders recognized David's leadership in doing what a king is supposed to do. In effect, the elders of Israel acknowledge that Saul may have been chosen to be king, but it was David who acted like a king. Therefore, Israel chooses to follow the known leadership of a man proven to be a mighty man of valor, a warrior. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. There's a third thing. The elders of Israel recognize God's approval of David as their next king. You see, David's anointing as the next king back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 through 13, it was a very public event. It wasn't secret. In fact, Saul was aware that David would one day be Israel's next king. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 20. Even Philistines knew David would be the next king. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 11. And though initially slow to act on God's call of David to lead, Israel eventually submits to it. Now, there's one more observation to make in verse 4. David was 30 years old when he became, became king. Now, think about that for a moment. You see, David's first anointing as king came when he was around the age of 15 to 19 years old, back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David has patiently waited for 11 to 15 years to actually become king. Why do you think God waited so long to make David king? When you look at all that happened to David from 1 Samuel 8 through 2 Samuel chapter 5, God was testing and shaping David's heart. Remember, David's title is a man after God's own heart. That doesn't happen by hoping to be like that. Such a heart for God grows over time as it is refined through different and various life experiences. God promised David that he would be king, but from the time Samuel anointed him for tenish some years, God used events to shape David's heart to be a good king with each test he faced. Uh, Think about it. From battling Goliath, David learned how to handle a crisis. From playing his harp for Saul, David learned how to love his enemies. From serving Saul as Israel's king, David learned how to honor authority. From his challenges as a shepherd and living as a citizen of Israel, David learned how to seek justice, how to love mercy, and walk humbly with his God. You see, it was in the waiting. It was in the waiting that God prepared David's heart for service as king. Now, I don't know what you are waiting for from God, but before you become impatient and stop waiting, ask yourself this question. What is God teaching me now that I may need for the future calling that God has for me? What is God teaching me now that I I may need for the future calling God has for me? That's an important question. Well, let's return to our text, 2 Samuel chapter 5. We are now in verses 6 through 10, where David goes to battle 
and turns Jebus into Jerusalem. You see, before David captured the city and named it Jerusalem, it was known as Jebus, and its citizens were known as the Jebusites. Now, we first learn about the Jebusites back in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 to 16, where we are told that they are Canaanites, Canaanites, a people who are both physically and spiritually a threat to Israel. Now, repeatedly, God had promised the Israelites that he would bring them into the promised land, Canaan, and it was the land that the Canaanites possessed, including the Jebusites. And God promised he would drive the Canaanites out of the land. Genesis 15, 18 to 21, Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 13, Exodus 23, 33, and 34. But we're told in the book of Joshua that Israel was unable to drive out the Jebusites. Joshua 15, 63. You see, since Israel could not defeat them, Israel learned to coexist with the Canaanites. The Israelites and Canaanites coexist. But is that what God commanded them to do? No. Israel failed to obey God in this area. So now David is going to complete what God commanded his people to do generations earlier. Now there's a second thing to notice in verses uh, 6 through 10. David needed a new capital city that would unify Israel. When David was king of Judah alone, Hebron served well as his capital city. But with David as king of both Judah and Israel, he needed a centrally located capital to unify the nation. Well, Jebus was the, uh, Jebus was the perfect city. It was a city that neither the sons of Judah nor the sons of Je Benjamin could capture. Now, by taking Jerusalem as his capital, David would not favor either of the two tribes. Finally, there's the natural geography of Jerusalem that made it difficult to defeat. And this is why the Israelites had not taken it and held it in the first place. You see, Jerusalem is on a hill. And on top of that hill or that, that mountain, it is also surrounded by valleys around it. And with a bit of work, it was a virtual fortress, chapter 5, verse 9. And by this point in the sermon, you're probably thinking the same thing I was as I wrote the sermon. So what? Why all this history, Troy? What relevance does it have to us? Well, in 2 Samuel, what we are learning about is the kingship of David. And yet, in David's kingship, we also learn about the lordship of Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a more descriptive explanation of Jesus' lordship than in the book of Colossians, followed by the book of Ephesians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul describes how God, here it is, brought us, the faithful disciples, into the kingdom of his beloved son. That verb, brought us into, it's the idea of a people relocating to a new place, relocating to a new home, a, a new calling. Like Israel, relocating their national capital to Jerusalem. As Christians, Christ has relocated us into a new kingdom where Jesus reigns as Lord, as King. Do you have that image in your mind? Now listen to the description of the new life neighborhood 
in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17, says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, let's pause here. By firstborn, it doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It doesn't mean that Jesus never existed until he was born through Mary. No, Jesus is God in the flesh. As God, he had always existed. Even before creation existed, Jesus existed. Instead, firstborn explains the supremacy of Jesus. It explains why Jesus has the right, uh, why he has the ability to reign as the sovereign son of God. Now look at verse 16. It explains why Jesus has the right to reign. It says this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. He is the glue that prevents the world from becoming unglued. Picture it this way. Verse 17 doesn't show Jesus sitting on a throne barking out commands. Instead, as injustice, as suffering, and as death are trying to tear the world apart on a day-to-day basis, Jesus is the one that's holding it together to prevent complete breakdown. See, even in holding the world together, it's showing that Jesus is the only Lord with the authority and the power to save. Jesus came to build the kingdom of God, a kingdom where God rules through God's people over God's place. So why is this idea of Jesus as Lord such an essential belief in the Christian life? You see, to have a Lord, that's a foreign concept to us. American history is built on the fact that we fought to be free of a king's control. So the idea of having a king, which means as citizens, you become the property of a master, a property of a lord, it leaves a bad taste in our mouths as Americans. But this idea of a king, a lord, is a central image in the New Testament. For example, scripture shows that sin, death, and the devil, they are lords or rulers who reign over people. For example, Jesus says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Sin is a master, a Lord who controls people. The Apostle Paul announces the flip side of this reality in Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion, literally no lordship over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Likewise, Paul teaches us that where sin is Lord, death reigns. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, as a master, sin pays off its slaves with the dividends of death. But there's more still. Dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 explains we were under condemnations, slaves under the lordship of Satan. It says children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Ephesians chapter 2, 3. From these New Testament texts, if a person is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ, then a person is under the lordship of sin, of death, of Satan. Now hear that again. If a person is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ, then a person is under the lordship of sin, death, and Satan. Jesus is the only positive alternative to all the evil kings that this world offers. That's why Paul frames the gospel in terms of Jesus' lordship. Listen again to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain, literally the lordship, of darkness, and he has transferred, he has relocated us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In Christ, Jesus is our master. He is our king. He purchased us, won us from all sins, from death and the power of the devil with his holy, precious blood and innocent suffering of death on the cross. Jesus is Lord. But his way of ruling is different from how other kings reign. Jesus does not rule with the sword and, and the threat of death if we do not submit. He rules from the cross, offering mercy and grace for sinners who are struggling to live under their new citizenship in God's kingdom. Charles Wesley has us sing in common, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus these words, and they capture this idea. It says, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy precious kingdom brings. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the citizens of Jerusalem cried out in Luke 19, verse 38, saying this, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Who is this King? It is Jesus Christ. Our King, begotten of the Father from eternity and true man born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus has come so we might be his own and have life in his kingdom. This is what we confess as the church. Gathered in Hebron 3,000 years ago, Israel's elders pledged themselves to their king, David. As we prepare to gather for the Lord's Supper, we will be pledging ourselves to our king, Jesus. As Jesus rules over our lives, may we humbly submit to him.